Tired of traveling to meet with colleagues or clients in person? Do more and travel less. Hold online meetings with GoToMeeting. Try it free for 30 days. Visit GoToMeeting.com slash scientific. Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting November 7th. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, Jonathan Patz talks about the ethics of climate change, and Joseph McMaster talks about next week's episode of the TV show Nova, which deals with the Dover Intelligent Design Trial of 2005. Plus, we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. First up, Jonathan Patz. He's an MD and holds a master's in public health, and he's part of the Center for Sustainability in the Global Environment, known as SAGE, at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where he directs a university-wide initiative on global environmental health and is Associate Professor of Environmental Studies and Population Health Sciences. As a lead author on several of the reports put out by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, he has a share in the 2007 Nobel Peace Prize given to the IPCC and Al Gore. I was in Madison last month, and we talked about a paper he has in what is now the current issue of the journal EcoHealth, published by the International Association for Ecology and Health. We spoke in his classroom with his students present. Dr. Patz, great to talk to you today. Great to be here, Steve. You have a paper called Climate Change and Global Health, Quantifying a Growing Ethical Crisis. What's the ethical connection to global warming? Well, certainly we know that uh, the industrialized world is causing global warming with all the greenhouse gas emissions from burning fossil fuels. Uh, and so the, the ethics is clear. The, the, the rich countries uh, producing greenhouse gases on the one hand, and on the other hand you have countries, poor countries in the developing world that are experiencing the most impacts from climate change. This is especially true in the area of health because there are so many climate-sensitive diseases. And if climate is changing, a lot of these diseases will be changing as well. What kinds of diseases are we talking about? Let's be specific. Well, anything from direct effects of hot temperatures, people die in heat waves, uh, ground-level ozone air pollution or photochemical smog, very temperature-sensitive, so heat waves, air pollution, and many infectious diseases, especially uh, those carried by insects or water-mediated diseases. So infectious diseases are highly sensitive to climatic conditions. So we're talking about cholera, maybe? Or are we talking about um, what kind of insect-borne diseases? Malaria? Uh, Mosquito-carried malaria, dengue fever, yellow fever, even West Nile virus. So a lot of these types of uh, diseases, waterborne diseases, cholera, um, cryptosporidiosis is a disease that uh, probably exposed over 400,000 people in Milwaukee uh, back in 1993 after major rainstorms. So we know that average temperature and average rainfall is generally uh, pleasant and healthy, but it's the extreme climate events that are dangerous, and that's what's predicted with global warming. Do we have any existing evidence that any of these effects are already happening? Do we see uh, disease patterns that have already changed because of rising temperatures? That's a great question. And according to the World Health Organization, who looked at uh, four different disease outcomes, including malnutrition, malaria, flooding, and diarrheal disease, just looking at those four climate-sensitive diseases, they estimate 
uh, over 200,000 people are killed every year from just the warming that has occurred between 1970 and 2000. And what's unique about our paper that's, I think, the real important message here is that we took those numbers from the World Health Organization of, uh, actually at that time, it was 166,000 deaths every year from climate change. Uh, we, we, we map those diseases, uh, and you see regional differences. For example, malaria and malnutrition uh, really occur in Africa, uh, poor car- parts of Asia, South, South America. And then we put that map of climate-sensitive diseases up against a map of CO2 emissions. And we have uh, a fabulous uh, student at SAGE, uh, Holly Gibbs, who actually um, put this map together. And when you put the CO2 emissions map next to the World Health Organization map of diseases, there's a stark contrast. And those most vulnerable to the health risks of climate change are the least responsible when you look at the maps together. So, for example, um, the United States uh, CO2 emissions, as far as tons of carbon uh, emitted per person every year, is six tons. The global average is one ton. Um, Canada and Australia are are similarly uh, uh, emitting like we are at that level. So, if the U.S. Uh, is is at six tons of, of CO2 per person per year. And Japan and Western Europe are approximately two to five tons of carbon per year that they're emitting. Compare that to developing countries, which on average are 0.6 tons of carbon per year. And there are more than 50 countries that are less than 0.2 tons of carbon that they're producing every year compared to an average American of six, six tons of carbon. So there's a, that's the huge uh, in balance as far as energy consumption and burning fossil fuels, then when you put that up against a map of climate-sensitive diseases determined by WHO, um, what you see is in Africa where you have 70 to 80 percent of the world's malaria and a, major, a, a large amount of malnutrition that are very climate-sensitive health outcomes, uh, you see Africa and uh, parts of Asia and Latin America uh, experiencing the greatest uh, health outcomes, and that's that's where the huge ethical dilemma is. You 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 know you may even go as far as to ask the question: Through our energy policies, are we exporting disease and suffering around the world? Let me ask you about the the figure for the uh, the CO two output per person in the United States. Is that figure? possibly a little bit misleading because, let's say, if we're the breadbasket to the world, does our per capita production really equate uh, correctly because so much of what we're burning those fuels to produce is going to wind up going international? Uh, that's a great question, but it's beyond the scope of this current paper that we, and analysis that we've done. Uh, it can get fairly complex quickly when you think about uh, agriculture uh, and and other means of um, you know energy and what what we're actually using. You could make the counter argument that in fact our market, where we are actually importing market goods from China and other parts of the world, that in fact our energy contribution may be even greater 
So it could be on the contrary to what you're, you're, you're suggesting. But that's, that's another analysis. Okay, let me ask you. I saw Bjorn Lomborg being interviewed recently, and he was uh, asked about the, the, uh, the health impact of global warming. And he said uh, what people forget is that if temperatures rise, we're going to have fewer deaths from people freezing to death. So what's your response to that kind of an argument? Well, that's that's an interesting argument, and it has been looked at. In fact, uh, in the last three United Nations uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change reports, the Health Expert Panel looked at all health outcomes, uh, and there are winners and losers. There are pluses and minuses, and there will be fewer deaths from cold-related mortality. That's true. But when you take these in aggregate and you look across all of the climate-sensitive outcomes and you you weigh them, the pluses and the minuses, the conclusion, on balance, there will be many more adverse effects than positive ones. But there will be some positive ones. In fact, uh, there was a study that showed that uh, Rocky Mountain spotted fever may decline in the southeast United States because it will get too hot for ticks. You know, so there will be winners and losers, but on balance, we think that uh, we've we've the people looking at the impacts have really uh, come out with the conclusion that uh, most of the adverse, most of the impacts will be adverse. What effect, if any, do you expect this paper to have? Do you expect there to be any kind of policy implementation based on this paper, or is this uh, more of an academic exercise? Well. We think that this paper has uh, has key relevance in the policy world uh, because the issue of fairness and equity is actually part of the the big negotiations that are about to happen in December, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, and the issue of fairness. Uh, even you know, there's a lot on economics and impact, but fairness it's an important issue. Um, one caveat regarding the fairness issue that we are producing global warming, and the United States is the number one uh, guilty party thus far, and other countries, poor countries, will experience the the real burden. One caveat is that we are in a globalized world, and so an increase in disease and disease risk anywhere in the world, when you think about air transportation and, um, you know, and, and food transportation, that increases in disease in any region of the world really can affect all of us. And so uh, with that aspect, I think that it would be premature, it would be, um, be wrong to think that industrialized nations are actually um, immune to these problems because they'll come back in our globalized world and, 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 and affect us as well. One other aspect uh, that I think is really important is that uh, I think there's a tremendous opportunity right now when you think about policy to stop global warming. And I'm talking about energy policy to reduce greenhouse gases. If we reduce greenhouse gases to reduce global warming, think of the co-benefits. You know, we burn fossil fuels, greenhouse gases. That also causes particulate air pollution and other criteria air pollutants that are very dangerous to our health. So there's an obvious win-win as far as reducing fossil fuels. And another thing, if you think about the American population, what's our number one epidemic right now? It's, it's obesity. And when you think about if we had greener cities where we are 
biking and walking more and driving cars less, how much more exercise would we get? And in fact, of the leading causes of death in this country, most of them are related to either sedentary lifestyle, air pollution, or motor vehicle accidents. And if we could begin to confront climate change and have greener cities and more walkability and bikeability, we would have increased uh, level of fitness, reduced air pollution, and reduced greenhouse gases. And, and I have a student working on this, quantifying these, these uh, benefits. One po- another bit of positive news is that already, even though our federal administration has sort of been uh, slow on this climate change issue, uh, across the country at community levels, people have been coming to the plate. There's a U.S. Uh, Mayor's Climate Protection Initiative with over 600 cities signed on to reduce greenhouse gases. So, you know, I see this climate change challenge, which is very serious and global, as possibly being the greatest public health opportunity that we've had in over a century. I'm a physician, and, and my my first ethical rule is first do no harm. So as we move forward on mitigating uh, climate change and reducing uh, greenhouse gases from burning less fossil fuel, let's be very deliberate and very careful in, in the energy policies that we plan and not just jump to something, for example, for example, like biofuels, where if done correctly, could, could be a good, a good uh, measure and, and may be useful, but done incorrectly right now by jumping to oil palms and soy plantations that are destroying forests in Malaysia uh, and other parts of the world or corn, which is not very efficient as far as energy in versus energy out, there are some strategic solutions to do it. Thanks very much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you very much, Steve. Appreciate being here. Thank you. For more information, just Google Jonathan Patz. That's P-A-T-Z. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories. Only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, King Tut's death mask was removed this week, revealing not just his face, but his remarkably even rows of perfect teeth. Story two, diets rich in fruits and vegetables can keep you thin because the antioxidants in them actively seem to fight fat formation. Story three, researchers have created a working radio that consists of one teeny tiny nanotube and story four the problem with snake oil medicine may have been not enough snake oil we'll be back with the answer but first on september 26 2005 i sat in a courtroom in harrisburg pennsylvania where a lawyer said for almost certainly the first time ever can we have the bacterial flagellum please It was, of course, the first day of the historic Dover trial in which intelligent design was found guilty of not being science. On November 13th, the PBS TV program Nova devotes two hours to the trial. I spoke about the program with Joseph McMaster, who co-directed, co-produced, and wrote the episode, which is called Judgment Day. I called him at his office in Boston. Hi, Joe. How are you? I'm fine, Steve. How are you? Good. Good to talk to you about this. I find this... The whole trial and the subject in general endlessly fascinating. The trial's been over for two years almost. What took that long? What what did you have to do to prepare this television program? We approached this um, in a combination of documentary as well as um, uh, uh, taking trial transcripts and recreating um, some of the the key 
moments of the trial. Um, uh, so that in and of itself, you know, took quite a, quite a while, but we did a lot of research and did the usual, um, uh, uh, filming, which, uh, you know, all these things take quite a while and then the editing process. So it's, uh, it, it, it's an extensive process. But. Yeah, I should. I I didn't. That might have come out wrong. I didn't mean that in a pejorative <laughs> sense. By the way, what I meant was, you know, it it you obviously because I've seen it. I got a, a review copy and I've seen the entire program. And there was so much work involved, and that's what I was getting at the the amount of work that was involved to do a comprehensive program about this trial. When you started production. Did you know it was going to be a two-hour episode, or, or was it a, a typical one-hour episode that you realized had to be expanded? This was, uh, I believe, from the start. Um, I believe, you know, even from the, the time it was conceived, this was always to be a two-hour program. And uh, you, you mentioned about the, the reenactments. Yeah, I mean, uh, Judge Jones um, made a decision early on uh, not to allow uh cameras and recording devices in the courtroom, as, as you know, since you were there. Um, and so that meant that there was no um, uh, video and audio record of the trial, just the transcript. Uh, so when we set about doing this, the, the, um, really the, the only way and the best way available to us to bring the trial to life was to take those transcripts, which are, of course, verbatim transcripts of everything that is said in the court, and uh to comb through those and uh and and choose key uh parts uh, from both sides that uh that then we would recreate in a um a, a a dramatic recreation and that stuff works very well because the the testimony is just so compelling from uh from many of the different parts of the trial it it really is i mean it's uh it, it, it was a it was a it was a to read the transcript is actually quite a lot of fun. I mean, it's, uh, you learn a lot and it's, um, and, and there's just, uh, there's, there's an awful lot there and there's some, you know, three or 4,000 pages of it. I can't remember. So it's, um, uh, there's, there's a, there's a lot there to choose from. That's for sure. It really is like a short course in evolutionary biology to read the transcripts of the trial. Yeah. That was one of the things that really attracted, uh, Nova to, to doing the, um, the, the story was that, um, as many people have said, it was, uh, uh, and I think as the New Yorker writer maybe put it early on, uh, the the science class you always wish you had, or something of that nature. But um, but but it was a it was a, a trial that featured lots of of science that the lawyers uh, on both sides had to um, distill and and bring down to a level that um, that the judge. Uh, who's uh, not a trained scientist, of course, would be able to understand and evaluate and make a decision based upon. So, uh, so for us, it was it was great. It was a, a trial full of science that uh, that that included, you know, great speakers and presenters and and a and a topic, of course, evolution that's um, that's so essential to to modern biology. So, one of the great things about the the Nova is uh, some attention that's paid to the local press that got so intimately involved in the trial. And uh, I was at the opening arguments of the trial and Ken Miller's testimony, the, the, uh, the author of one of the biology textbooks that's widely used and, and a real expert on evolutionary biology. 
uh, Ken Miller at Brown University, and I heard his opening testimony. Um, but uh, the the local media there just did a tremendous job, and the, the uh, episode talks about the local media, and that's how I kept up on the rest of the trial by reading the coverage on the web every day that these local reporters are doing. And they, of course, had been involved for for months and months prior to the trial by attending the school board meetings at which the drama really started to play out. Yeah, I mean, those um, those, those guys, there, there are two papers, I believe, right there in the local area and then uh, others um, uh, nearby in Harrisburg, of course. Um, but they, they, they just did an incredible job. Um, and, um, and in fact, a lot of their articles are still up on their website and you yeah. can read them there. Uh, but in the program, we, um, uh, we, we tell the story, um, or give the, uh, uh, do an interview with, um, one of the, um, local reporters, Lori Lebo, who, um, had a, a, a professional interest in covering the, the topic, of course, but, a, but also a, a, a personal interest in, in this kind of topic. Yeah, personal interest that you get into in the program because of uh, some family issues over the trial that uh, that wound up ending in a, in an unhappy fashion. But that's all in the show. Well, I just want to say that uh, you know I really enjoyed watching the advanced copy that I got, and as someone who attended part of the trial and and followed the trial uh, throughout, I think the the Nova episode really catches every important aspect of what was going on in there from the the personalities of the defendants on the school board to the beleaguered science teachers to the people in the community and to uh, right right through to the expert witnesses especially some of the wonderful stuff that Barbara Forrest contributed with her sort of archaeological dig through the various editions of the alternative textbook that uh the members of the school board had tried to get into the hands of the students there at Dover. So everything important that happened at the trial seems to be included in the episode. Yeah. Oh, that's great to hear. It's, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's a mountain of stuff. And, um, and I'm amazed, you know, just at how, how complicated and how, how layered this is. I mean, it, uh, there's, there's so much there. It's such a vital issue, I think, for, for, you know, so many different parts of our, of our, uh, society right now um that you know i think people people just come at this from all different angles you know some from more of a science angle and some from you know other angles but uh, yeah and one of the participants in the episode of nova is in fact a direct descendant of charles darwin yeah matthew chapman he's <laughs> he's a, a very entertaining guy and actually wrote um a terrific book on on his experience covering the trial and um and yeah we didn't i did an interview with him and um he definitely has a obviously a unique perspective on the whole thing uh, uh it's there you know in his family and a lot of people said uh that uh well as, as you know having been at the trial um the uh the press was in the jury box since it wasn't a jury trial and a lot of people said that uh having matthew chapman the great great grandson i believe i may have left out one of the greats there mm-hmm. uh having him in the jury box there was uh sort of like having the ghost of charles darwin present at the trial and one of the one of the people i interviewed made that comment and uh and i really i thought that that was that was extraordinary yeah it really is one of the uh fundamental trials in american history i think well it's, it was so i mean it, i think it really was so important because the the science that was that was being talked about 
is just uh, so fundamental to um, to, to uh, modern biological science that um, that it, it it just was so important, uh, such an important event on that ground alone. Well, I uh, I really enjoyed it, and I enjoyed talking to you. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. By the way, the program was co-produced by Vulcan Productions, created by Paul Allen, co-founder of Microsoft. The program airs at 8 p.m. Eastern on Tuesday, November 13th. For more info, go to www.pbs.org slash nova slash id. Also, by the way, I got a press release on November 6th announcing a press conference on the 7th by the Pro-Intelligent Design Discovery Institute, which is pre-denouncing the NOVA episode, so you know it's good. Here's a quote from the press release, quote, PBS and NOVA should be ashamed of claiming to be fair in how they treat intelligent design. If you're going to be biased, at least be upfront about your agenda in your programming, end quote. Well, they are, in fact, upfront because they have always been very open about their agenda at NOVA. They're a science program. Now it's time to see which story was totally bogus. Let's review the four stories. Story one, King Tut had perfect teeth. Story two, fruits and vegetables can keep you thin because they actually interfere with fat formation. Story three, tiny nanotube radio. And story four, snake oil medicine may not have had enough snake oil. Time's up. Story four is true. Snake oil is now a synonym for phony medicine, but a recent study shows that the right kind of snake oil is loaded with healthful omega-3 fatty acids, which a lot of people get by eating fish. For more, check out Cynthia Graber's November 1st article on the Siam website called Strange But True, Snake Oil Salesmen Were On To Something. Story three is true. Alex Zettel of the University of California at Berkeley announced the creation of the single nanotube working radio last week. The press release announcing the invention was titled World's Smallest Radio Fits in the Palm of the Hand of an Ant. I figured the discovery of an ant hand was the big story, actually. Of course, as Scientific American Editor-in-Chief John Rennie pointed out, ant radios can be smaller than ours because ants have their own antennas. And story two is true. Fruits and vegetables tend to be lower in calories than other foods, so that's a factor in why a diet rich in them keeps you thin. But new research indicates that the flavonoid and phenolic acid antioxidants in fruits and vegetables actually decreased levels of an enzyme involved in triglyceride synthesis. The work was done with mouse cells and appears in the Journal of Agricultural and Food Chemistry. All of which means that story one about King Tut's teeth being perfect is totally bogus. Tut's face was revealed to the world this week for the first time in over 3,000 years, but the boy king could have used braces to correct a big overbite. Nevertheless, Tut remains, as the New York Times put it, the face that launched a thousand trips to museums. Well, that's it for this edition of the Weekly Siam Podcast. Check out numerous features at our website, including the latest science articles, video news, and the blog. And hit the blog to see my photos of the New York City Marathon this past Sunday, along with a nice article by J.R. Minkle on the evolutionary adaptations for running. That's at blog.siam.com. And you can write to us at podcast.siam.com. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. And what with the King Tut news, we leave you this week with the musings of humorous Gene Shepard from 1976. Hey, all right, archaeology fans. 
Hey, you know, has it ever occurred to you that one day you could very well be an archaeological exhibit? I have a great feeling whenever I go into a museum or, you know, see anything on television where it shows archaeological exhibits, that there possibly go I. Well, I mean, let's face it, uh, you know, your average Incan, for example, uh, had no idea that one day 26,000 Cub Scouts would line up every afternoon to look at his shoe.